Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. I'm Brendan Connolly, a first-year medical student at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. And I'm Emily Hagan, also a first-year medical student at Stritch. Today's episode is part of our Medical Myth series. These episodes explore misinformation and common misunderstandings in the healthcare world with the goal to help dispel common myths and promote education and awareness. The topic today is undocumented immigrants in the healthcare system. A quick disclaimer before we get started. We understand immigration is a very contentious political issue in the United States and around the world. The Medicus podcast is not attempting to promote any particular ideology with this episode. We are simply trying to have conversations that will lead to better awareness of complex issues. Even if you think you will disagree with the content or spirit of this episode, we encourage you to approach it with an open mind and remember that understanding immigration may help in addressing problems that the U.S. healthcare system currently faces. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Kuszewski, a professor of medical ethics and the director of the Neiswanger Institute for Bioethics and Health Policy at the Loyola Stritch School of Medicine in Chicago. Dr. Kuszewski has been engaged in bedside clinical ethics issues for more than 25 years and is a past president of the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. For the last decade, he has been an articulate spokesperson for the just and equitable treatment of immigrant patients. Dr. Kuszewski collaborated to help create the Sanctuary Doctor website, which assists clinicians in supporting immigrant patients. He also led the effort to make Stretch School of Medicine the first medical school in the nation to openly welcome applicants who are DACA recipients. Dr. Kuszewski, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love Medicus podcast. All right, great. So just to get started, I'd like to have you introduce what you do here at Stretch and what you're involved in. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I'm a, a bioethicist, uh, which and I run, the, I direct the Bioethics Institute here at Stretch, um, and uh, we do various things, including teaching and uh, stuff like that. But I'm also I'm a clinical ethicist, which means I do consultations over in the hospital along with my colleagues. Um, so the uh, healthcare team can call us when they have a conflict or difficult situation that they need to clarify um, or to resolve the the conflict and need some kind of mediation in that. Um, and so as a clinical ethicist, we go, and they're often like end-of-life care decisions uh, where uh, physicians are thinking that treatment might not be beneficial any longer and families or patients are still insisting on doing everything. And we help discuss those kinds of things. And that's led into this area of uh, immigration for me, um, largely because around 10 years ago, I started running into cases um, that we were being called on, which involved undocumented immigrants. Um, and immigrants are typically younger than the general population and so don't, don't consume many healthcare resources. But like young people, they, are, uh, they get involved in things like accidents, workplace injuries. Um, and so uh, we'd see cases, for instance, uh, see, I saw a young construction worker who uh, was a very hardworking young man, had a serious workplace accident, was in the hospital, um, and was essentially stuck there because um, unlike a citizen who, uh, after being stabilized and uh, having everything done that an acute care facility could do, would be moved on to rehabilitation or long-term care, a lower level of care, less expensive level of care where they would recover. Um, but in the U.S., if, uh, if you were um, uninsured, something like Medicaid would eventually kick in and pay for you to go to rehab or a long-term care facility. Uh, but being undocumented, um, they were he was ineligible for benefits. And so um, he was essentially stuck in the hospital because unlike the hospital, no other healthcare facility has to take a person who is unable to pay. And so then the question would come to us, what do we do? And so um, the unfairness of these kinds of situations, the plight of these uh, mm -hmm. individuals, as well as the effect on the healthcare system, uh, really caught my attention. And I just mm -hmm. got very interested and started to study everything I could about our immigration system. And one thing led to another. Yeah, and here we are. Here we are. <laughs> just to kind of follow up on that, obviously, you know a lot, you've studied a lot about immigration. And um, could you help, just to start this episode, define what is an undocumented immigrant? 
Sure. Um, you know, and uh, you know, I'm glad we're starting um, so simply because in, in many ways, uh, even though we're a nation of immigrants, most Americans don't know very much about our immigration system at all. Right. You know, uh, often that's a, a family story in our past, but maybe a vague horizon that we don't know much about. Um, and an undocumented immigrant is somebody who came to, uh, to the United States um, either um, coming across uh, and entering um, in a place that's not a, a checkpoint, so coming across the border in a place where there is not a, uh, a checkpoint, um, or came on a visa, for instance, to the, country, the United States, um, tried to renew the visa, maybe was unable to do so, and continued to remain in the country. And so they, they do not have an immigration authorization. Um, and so at, uh, that has all sorts of implications uh, for the for uh, folks. The, most estimates say there's about nine to eleven million people in this situation in the United States currently. Um, it is a uh, unlike. Uh, the popular myths about undocumented immigrants, it's a fairly stable population at this point. At one time, it was growing in the uh, mm. early 2000s uh, rather significantly. Um, most, about two-thirds of these uh, undocumented immigrants have been in the United States more than 10 years. And unfortunately, um, our laws tightened up around 1996-97 and made it much harder to adjust your status once you'd been here without documentation. Uh, many of our own families, if we research our family histories uh, far back enough, find that our families didn't necessarily come here with, uh, with authorization. Uh, but the laws just used to make it easier to adjust your status after you were here for a significant period of time. But many of these people are just sort of stuck in this limbo. Right. Mm. So you touched on this a little bit, just with the demographics of the immigrant population. Could you say a little more about that? Um, where do most immigrants come from? How many undocumented are there? You said 9 to 11 million, but anything else that you know about the demographics? Yeah. Uh, well, one thing that, that is always true of immigrants is they tend to be younger than our general population. Mm -hmm. um, because if you think about who's likely to get up and move to another country and start a whole new life, rip themselves away from their families, um, it, it, the people who are able to do that tend to be younger people. And so uh, that, that also means that they're going to consume less of certain kinds of resources like health care, um, but will also then have things happen to them that happen to um, young people like injuries. Mm. Um, so, uh, so the demographic tends to be younger. As I mentioned, though, um, because uh, uh, various uh, uh, policies, federal policies, that population has remained stable. Um, for one thing, uh, making it harder to enter the country, such as by securing our borders more tightly, uh, means that people who used to uh, be likely to go back to their countries uh, of origin have, have stayed, so the population has remained more stable. Mm. Um, so there's uh, so about two-thirds of have been here more than 10 years, so they're starting to approach middle age, which has some health implications as well for many of them. Um, the other piece that's notable about this is um, for for uh, much of the early 2000s, that population was um, uh, largely composed of Mexican-Americans and uh, many Central Americans, um, Latinos, Latinx uh, populations. Right. Um, but the uh, immigrant flow to the United States has actually shifted significantly, with uh, most uh, immigrants to the United States coming from Asian nations currently. Okay. And undocumented people tend to come from where documented people come from. Um, for the simple reason, as I mentioned, many will come on a visa or uh, enter lawfully, mm -hmm. um, but then uh, because of being unable to uh, adjust their status or renew their visas, uh, become undocumented and choose to stay with their families or not, not go back. And so um, the population of the undocumented, while it's relatively stable in that 9 to 11 million range, the composition is actually shifting over time to increasing numbers of Asians and, and fewer Latinos. Yeah, interesting. So we are looking at medical myths. And um, specifically for this episode, myths about undocumented immigrants and the healthcare system. And so we're just wondering if you can tell us what some of those myths are, if any. You can definitely pare it down to what some of the biggest, most maybe most controversial ones are, or uh, most noteworthy ones are? Sure. Um, well, the, uh, um, there, there are many myths, um, but many, you know, uh, some of the most common ones are things like uh, 
undocumented immigrants consume a great deal of resources. Um, and that's simply not true um, for some of the reasons I've already mentioned. Uh, younger people don't tend to consume as many healthcare resources. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to contribute to the system without taking as much from the system. Um, similarly, uh, uh, there's good evidence that they um, underutilize the healthcare resources, um, even compared to their age group. And you can imagine this, um, you know, if you're trying to stay out of the sight of the authorities, uh, you're worried about being picked up and being deported, um, you will uh, stay out of official looking places as much as you possibly can, um, not being sure who you can trust and things like that. So um, there's probably rather significant underutilization of healthcare resources um, relative even to the, the small needs of, of the population. Um, and so th those kinds of myths are, are pretty common and, and are very unfortunate. Mm. So going off that, um, in an article that you wrote for The Hill, um, you wrote specifically, undocumented immigrants receive some benefits from a healthcare system to which they are prohibited from contributing and do not receive benefits from government insurance systems to which they contribute. So I believe that what you explained before I share the quote touches on this, but I'm wondering if you could further explain what you meant by this quote. Sure, right. You know, and in, in a, uh, a good healthcare system, um, a good system of finance and delivery, you want people to contribute and to benefit from the system. Uh, with people who are undocumented, there are exclusionary policies in place that actually prevent them from contributing what they might contribute. Um, for instance, um, if well, one is uninsured and the uninsurance rates among the undocumented are high, um, you would typically go to the uh, one of the health care exchanges in your state online that was created through the Affordable Care Act right. and, and buy a health care policy, right, a health insurance policy. Um, undocumented immigrants are prohibited from doing that. And so um, even a full price policy on that exchange, they're prohibited from purchasing. And that obviously has uh, some negative consequences um, for the health insurance exchanges. For instance, one of the things we know about the Affordable Care Act is it was really, it's really struggled to get as many young people into the system and purchasing health insurance to offset the older people who are buying the mm -hmm. health insurance through it. Um, and so to cut off a population that is one of its characteristics is young, um, that prevents us from recruiting some of those young people who would be paying into the system. So in that way, they're, they're um, limited in what they're able to contribute directly. Um, but then uh, they also do benefit from some things like emergency services um, to which they do not pay in. And so, you know, uh, as I mentioned with the, young, the case of the young man who had a workplace accident, he's obviously brought in through the emergency room and hospitals have to take uh, people who brought in in emergencies um, and be, until they're at least stabilized. And so um, that he becomes a charity care case at that point, uncompensated care for the hospital. And where, do, where does uncompensated care get funded from? Well, essentially from people who are coming with private insurance policies, right? And so right. when you're a patient, you come with a private insurance policy. Uh, probably your, your family policy has one to $2,000 more per year in its premiums that go to its un uncompensated care. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, that's, to all, that's for all uninsured people, not just undocumented people, but that they end up being uninsured because they're unable to contribute and, and, and siphoning from that pool of uncompensated care. Right. Well, that's really interesting to think about how Obamacare has set up undocumented immigrant patients to be in this predicament. And it's not their fault by any means. It's just a byproduct of how the system is working. Exactly. And that was um, deliberate because, um, as you might remember, it was very difficult to pass the Affordable Care Act. There was quite a, a fight in Congress. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, they felt it would just be more controversial and harder to uh, um, pass if they included everybody in it. But yet an insurance system works best when everybody's included and nobody's excluded. It doesn't make sense when you're trying to uh, provide broader coverage to exclude some populations. Right. So just the statement that I think kind of encapsulates one of the biggest potential myths out there about undocumented immigrants and healthcare is that immigrants are a drain or a burden on the U.S. healthcare system in some way. And you've already kind of touched on this in a, in a lot of uh, in a lot of your points. But is there any 
truth to that statement in some ways, or in what are some of the other falsities to that statement also? Uh, sure. Well, yeah, directly in response to your question about Medicare and Medicaid, um, those are systems that many undocumented immigrants, most undocumented immigrants, pay into and are unable to benefit from. Mm. They are excluded from all federal federal benefits. It's mm-hmm. it's just that simple by federal law. They're okay. excluded from all federal benefits. Yet, meanwhile, undocumented immigrants typically pay taxes. Uh, the, right. They pay millions of dollars in taxes, including to the Medicare system and the Medicaid system. And so, um, you know, now all of us, when uh, at any age, not just elderly people, elderly people, um, if we were to need dialysis, that's covered by the Medicare program. Mm -hmm. And undocumented immigrants are not eligible for that. So they will be paying in because they have taxpayer ID numbers typically. One doesn't necessarily need a social security number to pay taxes. You can apply to the federal government for what's called an ITIN, an individual tax uh, uh, number, and you can pay in federal taxes. And so uh, millions are paid into Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid every year. And yet if uh, um, an undocumented immigrant does uh, go into renal failure, again, showing up at the emergency room, getting dialysis, being discharged because they're no longer an emergency, mm-hmm. and then what's going to happen to a person with renal failure? They're going to come back in a few days again. And so it's a tremendously inefficient system that they would have paid into, right. and instead it's being shifted to that uncompensated care pool. And so um, you know, there are a few minor exceptions to this. For instance, a few states, um, a very limited number of states, including the state of Illinois, fortunately. Um, mm. Kudos to Illinois. Yes. Um, will we'll, uh, enroll um, uh, children in the Medicaid and, and state children's health insurance programs. And so, um, so uh, children can get uh, insurance through the state um, if they're undocumented, but not their parents. Um, you know, and so it, so um, they, you know, any drain that is on the system is simply from not allowing people to contribute as much as they can. Again, it would just be better if they paid into all the same systems and benefited from all the same systems. And, th- and at, at that point, it would be uh, really to all of our benefits um, because, again, you have a, a pool of younger people, a population that tends to be a little healthier at that point. Um, you know, and we're talking healthcare today. That we're not even, we haven't even mentioned Social Security, which, you know, is our, our retirement programs. Um, I'm at the age where I really think we should open up the uh, immigration spigots here at this point, because as we know, we're an aging society. Um, we, uh, you know, while Social Security is relatively healthy, it could, um, it still is a little bit out of balance at this point because of our uh, tilting demographic pyramid. Um, you know, and it was always, I think, the assumption of most economists going back 20 and 30 years that at some point as the U.S. aged, the baby boomers got older, we were going to um, in- increase the number of immigrants that we took lawfully to offset that. Right now, actually, um, fortunately, you know, we haven't closed the lawful immigration tap completely. We still have take a significant number of immigrants lawfully every year with authorization in the United States. But, you know, if we didn't, our population would actually be decreasing significantly. It's the only thing preventing us from actually going into negative growth at this point. And, and a healthy society actually tends to grow a little bit mm-hmm. each year, and, and that would be to our benefit to, um, uh, to be a little bit more liberalized in our immigration policies. It would benefit um, the baby boomers and all of us. Yeah. Going off what I just asked, You've talked before about undocumented immigrants delaying seeking out treatment. And so in the context of EMTALA, uh, one of the laws that's been passed, could you talk a little bit more about that and what effect it might have on both mm-hmm. undocumented immigrant health and the healthcare system, and also probably explain what EMTALA is and what it stipulates? Mm-hmm. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, EMTALA is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. And it's essentially a law, a federal law, um, that was passed in the early 80s that um, requires that if somebody presents to a hospital in an emergency situation, that the hospital does not turn them away and, um, and treats them uh, until they're at least stabilized. Um, and this was to prevent some hospitals from um, trying to uh, close themselves off and, and shift uh, uninsured patients to other hospitals. And so it's meant to make all hospitals a place that are caring and open to people in extreme situations. Um, and so so 
and because of that law for the last uh, 30, 40 years, um, uninsured people have made the emergency room their primary place in which they sought care. And that was, certainly was particularly prevalent before the Affordable Care Act, but certainly still remains strong even after the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so uh, people presented the ER. And Again, all uninsured people, not just undocumented immigrants, um, don't like to come in and ask for something free. Mm -hmm. So uninsured people have typically um, re refrained from coming into hospitals until they were really sick. And so one of the things that, that really um, drove the Affordable Care Act's passage was saying, you know, wouldn't it be better if these folks had primary care homes where they could get treatment up front, preventive care, wellness care, and stay healthier and get treated earlier, too, for, um, because it helps prevent the spread of infection, for instance, right? Get your, they get their flu shots up front. The Affordable Care Act covers flu shots for everybody. Um, and, uh, and also, if they're sick with an infectious disease, come in early and get treated by, in the doctor's office. Office, rather than waiting till they're really sick, perhaps have spread the illness to other people, and then come into the emergency room where it's harder to treat them and more expensive to treat them at that point because they're much, much sicker. And so because undocumented immigrants have remained um, ineligible for the Affordable Care Act, and of course there are many uninsured people in uh, the 14 states in the United States that have not expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, so people in those states also are in the same situation, they, they're still not coming into those emergency rooms until they're pretty sick. And so um, the undocumented immigrants have that added layer that, again, they don't want to have to show up and uh, not really sure how safe they are in hospitals. Um, you know, because you, know, you can imagine when you come into a hospital, right, um, one of the things that happens is if you're uh, seeking uncompensated care is the hospital usually sends a case manager or social worker just to interview you and see if you're eligible for any benefits. Mm -hmm. And so they're essentially disclosing their situation to somebody in the hospital. And that makes people very nervous when they're in that situation. So um, undocumented immigrants really will will do all they can to avoid coming into that ER. But obviously there are points when people get just so sick that they really know they need care, and then they do come into that emergency room. And so um, that they are treated there, and again, they're sicker. Um, it's, it's more difficult and probably more expensive care at that point. Um, and in some cases, because they're unable to be set up with um, ongoing care, if, it's a, if it turns out to be a chronic illness, so we just use the example of dialysis, right? Now, obviously, we know the outcomes for patients in renal failure with dialysis are best if they have regular scheduled appointments that, uh, at, at short intervals that are, that are timed, rather than waiting till they, they look like an emergency, which is normally a couple days extra, show up, get dialyzed, and, uh, and it's, it's uh, more expensive, uh, more, uh, and the patient ends up being sicker as a result. The outcome is worse. And so it really is just better for everybody. If, um, if health care was just thought of as something that, um, and health insurance is something that's inclusive regardless of um, artificial social distinctions like immigration status. Definitely. That point exactly reminds me of um, the doctor and author Paul Farmer, who claims that health is a human right, and he wrote Mountains Beyond Mountains describing his work. And I think understanding these myths better helps to remind us of how detrimental it is that undocumented immigrant patients are deprived of so many rights afforded to U.S. citizens, um, including health care and access to insurance, and things that I think everyday citizens lose sight of and and forget how much of a privilege it is in, in this country to be afforded these these rights that you know don't think of all the time I, well you know I completely agree with you Emily and I think one of the things that maybe misleads us in the United States is our emphasis on the word rights because mm. rights sound like an individual thing if, if I fulfill your rights we, we tend to think you're the person benefiting and yet I think when it comes to system things, systemic things like healthcare, we have a healthcare system and everybody benefits if we include everybody, 
we all are harmed if we exclude people. Because again, right. think think about the you know certainly the individual benefits if they're able to come and see a primary care doctor. But again, you and I would benefit from it because um, we're we're not having to pay more on our insurance premium for the more expensive care in the emergency room. Right, they, which they, could have been avoided in the first place. Exactly, they're paying into the system up front, so uh, rather than going into the uncompensated care pool. So the system benefits all of us benefit. It's a common good, Definitely. and I think sometimes we just we focus too much on, on rights. And you know, and and, I, I, and it takes us a little bit of field, but I think that's true of so many systems in the United States, and we fail to see it. Um, our education system, mm. it benefits everybody. If we have an educated populace, everybody benefits. A better society. Correct, and, and our economy functions better if everybody's educated and has high skills. Yet we tend to think, oh, it's your education, you're benefiting, so you should have to pay for it, and you should have to take out the big student loans instead of we all pay in common for it, because it's a common good. This also reminds me of, um, I'm drawing a blank of the name of this TV show. It's a medical drama, and it's based on the book about um, the Bellevue Hospital in New York City. And there was this one episode where this patient who wasn't an immigrant, um, let alone an undocumented immigrant, but he didn't have insurance. He couldn't afford insurance. And on top of that, he couldn't afford shelter or clothing or healthy food. So for all these myriad reasons, he constantly became ill and ill with things that could have easily been prevented. So essentially every day, every other day, he was coming to the hospital seeking critical care and the doctors just kept on getting really annoyed because they were like, oh, I fixed his problem with his GI system yesterday. I fixed his throat issue last week. Why is he back? And then they realize he's back because he doesn't have a safe place to live. He doesn't have food. He doesn't have clothes in the frigid winter. So this might be an extreme example, but the hospital just decided that it was more economical to buy this man an apartment. <laughs> so they bought him an apartment so that he could avoid getting sick. And essentially, they didn't talk about this in the show, but it, that those funds would have come from the patients who have private insurance, mm-hmm. I imagine. And so the solution was effective. He stopped coming to the hospital, which I think just pointed out the idea that by affording people rights, like you explained before, everyone benefits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you know, and that example is not fictitious. Um, virtually every major health system in the country now is looking at um, it, its patient population, saying who among them are homeless and coming in frequently because their their needs are being caused by their social situation. Um, and then trying to address those by putting funds into um, either some kind of uh, uh, emergency temporary housing for people or trying to get them hooked up with uh, uh, longer-term supportive housing. Um, and th- you know, and, it, and it's interesting because it's a, a very um, positive move on the part of healthcare to think about the social determinants of health and try mm-hmm. to address them. Um, it's still a deficit in our thinking as a society though that we're willing to do that because, again, it's coming under the, the heading of medical. And so we're, we're willing to address housing if it's the medical system addressing it. And not right. we somehow think some social needs are invalid and medical needs are real. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and that's just an unfortunate way for us to think about it. But we're, we're at least making progress. Yeah, there are so many intricate ties between them. And it's from our conversation so far sounds like they're even more heightened in some contexts surrounding undocumented immigrant patients as mm-hmm. well. Yes, uh, that, that's, that's very much the case. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, these, these issues like, um, as I mentioned, chronic care, because, you know, with, with the population being more stable over time, more of that population is starting to head into middle age. And unfortunately, middle age brings more of these chronic illnesses, uh, like diabetes mm-hmm. and then sequelae, like renal failure. Um, and so that's a pretty typical case confronting a hospital is what to do with an undocumented patient who needs dialysis. Um, and so the, the right answer is to simply put them in the, the regular dialysis clinic program on a regularly scheduled basis and try to offset that cost through um, 
through uncompensated care funds. Um, but you know, the, our system is so complicated. Uh, almost no health system in the country owns its own dialysis clinics anymore. Really, there's two major private providers that health systems contract with. And so increasingly, and I, I, I'm proud to say many of the large Catholic health systems have led the way on this. Uh, many of those systems are going to those private dialysis providers they contract with and saying we have to work something out in our contract in which we share the cost for the, this patient population because it doesn't make sense for us to have them keep coming back to the, through the ER. And, right. and unfortunately, not every place has, has worked these systems out yet, but more and more are doing so because it just makes sense. Right. That's all really, really helpful to paint a picture surrounding the treatment of undocumented immigrant patients. Um, so, so far we've talked a bit about different myths surrounding undocumented immigrant patients, and we're wondering if you could shed some light on how and when these myths formed and why they're continuing to persist. You know, and that that's just a great question. And um, you know, I, and it's hard to know what the answer is, and it's not. There's probably not just one answer. Um, you know, there was uh, there are times when in our country when we've had um, just uh, a lack of good information. You know, I mean, you think about um, what causes animosity towards a particular group of people. You think they're taking something that doesn't belong to them, or do you think they're taking something particularly from you? You know, um, and so uh, you've heard people say, "Oh, they take our jobs." and uh, things like that, and so there, there were those kinds of, of uh, myths, and um, and some of those were, you know, economists uh, didn't have the the knowledge they needed to show that in fact that wasn't really true, um, and so a lot of uh, you know if you look back historically, um, you know we 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 try to stay out of politics with this, but the Republican Party used to be more the pro-immigrant party, and the Democrats being more suspicious of immigrants because the Democrats saying oh they take the the jobs from the union workers and. And the Republicans being more in favor of big business and saying, "Oh, it provides cheap labor for us," um, and so and so many thought, "Oh, these undocumented immigrants are coming in, bidding down the wages and replacing uh, uh, U.S. citizen workers." Um, but economists in the last two decades have really done a good job of showing, you know, it doesn't actually work that way. That um, the problem with that was we were thinking of the economic pool as finite, and so if there's only X number of jobs. If uh, an immigrant takes it, that's one that's not there for a citizen. But the other economists showed, you know, we were forgetting that they were consumers too. And so particularly, we're talking about young people coming into the country, starting families, um, buying homes, um, having children, all things that create lots of consumption. And so the economic pie would grow because businesses would have to meet those needs and so more jobs would be created. And so really we, what we end up with a problem is, as we were just talking about, that um, if we um, allow our population to age without offsetting it with young people, then the economic pie shrinks because old people don't buy new homes, don't have kids, don't form families, don't generate that economic activity. And so um, some of that resentment was really because of this fear that people were coming and taking something um, uh, from us. And, um, you know, and th with that, there's also just this uh, image that, um, you know, say when an economic downturn happens and you've got too many workers, right? And, and so everybody's like, then the, the um, anger wells up against people they consider outsiders. Um, you know, typically what had happened historically is um, immigrants flow back to where they came from in economic downturns. Um, because, you know, if you're going to starve, if you're starving in your country of origin and you're going to come to the U.S. and starve here, you might as well starve with your family back mm -hmm. home, right, where you're, with your roots. And so people tend to flow back. Um, you know, even at the height of our influx of immigration at the beginning of the last century, at the beginning of the 20th century, we have this image of everybody coming through Ellis Island and staying here. Almost a third of those immigrants ended up going back to live in the country they came from. Hmm. Because when the economic downturns happen in the U.S., it's a natural flow, just like capital flows, labor flows. But unfortunately, we've been cutting off that flow of labor and to some degrees, wall, degree walling it in. While our immigrant population decreased um, during the last Great Recession in 2007-2008, uh, it probably didn't decrease nearly as much 
as it would have had those folks believed they could come back if the econ- economy picked up, mm. because they they were afraid then to leave their family. I won't be able to get back here if uh, um, if the economy picks up and I can get a job. So we may actually be walling people in who would like to leave. And so um, the. Uh, you know, really, when I think about it as a system, um, you know, labor and capital, if we're making it easier for capital to flow, we need to make it easier for labor to flow. Unfortunately, our, our trade treaties have made it easier for capital to flow, harder for labor to flow. And so people, um, uh, you know, and so again, it, it's, it's kind of a myth. Um, you know, and of course, there's just political um, hay to be made sometimes from uh, being a little bit demagogic towards a particular group. You know, mm-hmm. point the finger, say the problem is those folks there, and we will keep those folks out, right? Um, and so then this image gets painted of immigrants as criminals. You know, they're coming here to commit crime. Well, you know, if you've got millions of people in, in a group here, some will commit crimes. But the question is, is it any different from the citizens? And most studies show that, in fact, immigrants in general commit far fewer crimes per the population than U.S. citizens. Because if you think about it... They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to get in (laughs) trouble because they'll get deported. And of course, they've been motivated by something. They've been motivated by coming and building a new life, right? And that's what they devote themselves to when they get here. prosperous here and not getting put in jail, I imagine. Exactly. I mean, there's no reason to kind of pick up and move to a whole new country just to commit crime, right? You want to build a whole life for yourself. So that first generation of immigrants tends to be extremely hardworking and Mm -hmm. productive and very low in things like commission of crime. So it seems like attitudes would maybe change if people knew some of this information, but could you speak to why these ideas, these notions persist Mm -hmm. and and continue to be held by many Americans, many uh, groups? Yeah. Well, you know, it's always easier to uh, to spread fear than knowledge, right? It's always easier to say the problem is that person over there, um, and we can fix that problem by not letting them in or deporting them, and um, and so. Uh, it, it's just so simple to um, to point the finger at people, and and people buy into that. Scapegoating is is, mm-hmm. is what what happens, um, and unfortunately, um, you know, as we had started talking about at the very beginning of, of this discussion. Most of us don't know a darn thing about the immigration system, right? It's just right. not something that affects us day to day for the most part. We, we fear somebody out there should take care of it. They'll it's get it It's in the right. background or it's not my problem. Right, exactly, right? exactly. So most people have no idea. So they ask questions like, you know, that, that, that's um, out of frustration where they say, why don't they just get right with the law? Why don't they get in line? Mm. Um, and they don't realize that, you know, we tightened the laws in 1996 and seven and, um, and there is no line anymore for these folks. There's no uh, options for them to um, to adjust their status, or they certainly would. And so um, I think it's at that lack of knowledge, and um, and it's hard to motivate that knowledge, because, you know, um, which is why I'm so thankful that people like yourselves are doing a, a po- podcast like this, because I'm hopeful that this time of crisis in our country where we're paying attention to immigration is an opportunity for people to learn something about the system. Um, and so you know, my worst fear is that this crisis will kind of pass and we won't know a darn thing more generally than we, we went in knowing, and, mm. and that would be unfortunate. So, so knowledge does help, but um, how to motivate that knowledge is, is tough because it, it doesn't necessarily affect people every day. But, um, but again, I do think we want to talk to the baby boomers a little bit about their social security uh, retirement plans and, and how that's being affected by the lack of, of uh, immigration. Yeah. Um, so you kind of touched on this already, but I think a common way that some immigrants are characterized is that they're takers in some way that they come here and they are taking resources from the people who are already here. But a good point that you made is that they're also giving back resources or they're buying into those resources too. It seems like that's just a different way to frame things. If you look at it as an entire economy, immigration in your mind or the view that you're putting forth is overall just a net benefit to society. Opening up opportunities for people who come here so that it's not so restrictive, so that people can fully participate in the society that they choose to participate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. And, and this um, division we have of people into the makers and the takers um, is just incredibly artificial. Um, you know, uh, People um, are uh, by nature desirous of, uh, of working. 
we were defined by our work. We, you know, the things we're able to accomplish, we're proud of those things. And immigrants typically come very motivated. This has always been true in the United States, right? This is what's made the United States so great is that we mm -hmm. are this nation of immigrants, of people who are the best and the brightest, the most motivated um, who, to get up and move to say, I'm going to make a better life for myself and my family, most often for their families. For their, most often an immigrant is thinking about future generations. And, um, and as I mentioned, they, they, uh, you know, the, the, the statistics on those first generations of immigrants all the time in a family are of people who work very long hours, um, uh, try to, to save, try to put aside for their family, um, commit crimes at very low rates population-wise, um, really are uh, what drives our economy. And, you know, as I mentioned, at one time this was sort of... Um, uh, a theme that was taken up very strongly by the Republican Party. I mean, our last amnesty for undocumented immigrants was, of course, in 1986 under President Ronald Reagan. Um, and, and he was very proud to, to um, give three million people a pathway to citizenship. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I, I think that there, his way of looking at it was, yeah, you come here, you're a bit exploited, you pay your dues, but then at some point we say, enough, we're going to give you the opportunity to move up. And that really then um, sets off a, uh, a wave of greater economic activity because then people are able to get jobs and, um, that they are qualified for. Because initially when they come and they, uh, they're off the books or things, you're doing manual labor or things that uh, you may uh, be overqualified for, but they pay their dues, they work their, those long hours, they work hard for their families. And then at some point, being able to adjust that status allows them to contribute even more. And, and I, I really think we need to revive that spirit that President Reagan um, used to put forward. And I, there's no reason that, that immigration reform should be a partisan issue. It's an American issue. Right. So as I explained in the introduction to this interview, you have been instrumental in allowing DACA students to gain admission to Stretch. So we'd like to discuss DACA a bit. First, can you explain what your role in pushing um, for the admission of DACA students to Stretch was? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, now we're talking about one of my favorite subjects. Um, the, uh, uh, the, you know, my role, I, I sometimes say I was the instigator. Um, catalyst might be a more technical term. Mm. Um, but because I got interested in these undocumented patients a decade ago, um, I was always talking about immigration. As I said, I was trying to learn everything I could about it and trying to ask people, you know, why do you think things are the way they are? Why does the system not make any sense? Why don't we have immigration reform? And I think I was talking about it ad nauseum to people, and uh, people were getting a little tired of listening to me. Um, but then one day, an email uh, came to a professor on the Lakeshore campus from a professor out at uh, Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and he described the best student he had ever seen. Um, and it was she had a 394 GPA, she was bilingual, double major, had service activities, and wanted to be a physician. Um, and he sent it to this friend of his and said, I, you know, I don't know if you know anybody in the med school, but if she's going to go to med school, um, she's probably going to have to have somebody shepherd the application because she's undocumented. Um, and this was in uh, May of 2011, so it was before mm, Docker right before. was created, yes. Uh, but that email got forwarded to me um, because I was known as talking ad nauseum about it. So it's the old, <laughs> send it to Mark. He talks about this stuff all the right. time. I'll appreciate this email. Yes, and so um, I... I I, it was um, it was an epiphany for me because I knew a lot about undocumented immigrants, but I didn't realize that there was a whole generation that had grown up here in that time since that 1986 immigration reform mm. um, and not being able to adjust, and that many of them were achieving to the kinds of levels that were described um, in this email. Um, and and, I, and immediately, I mean, a lot of thoughts went through my head. Um, one was, um, are there more like her? Because that would, we want the best and the brightest in medical school, and so we right. want more of these. As you know, medicine has a diversity problem. Um, you know, while we get many uh, wonderful applicants, um, there are many underrepresented minorities, um, and that we really benefit if our medical school classes reflect the demographics of the United States, because then everybody learns how to treat the population. You train side by side with, with others. You learn cultural things. Um, you learn about their social circumstances. And all of you are then equipped to treat 
all the kinds of patients that are out there. And um, we've, but we've had uh, difficulty um, recruiting sufficient numbers of qualified underrepresented minorities. And this struck me as an, a very rich pool of, of such people if, if there were more like her. Um, and, uh, and furthermore, one of the things we know about um, people from uh, uh, communities that are underserved is that when they become physicians, they return to those communities at pretty high rates to serve those underserved communities. And so it struck me as um, if Rosa, her name was Rosa, was described in the email, could become a physician, probably some people were going to have a physician in their future who wouldn't have had a doctor to go to. And so it struck me as this was right in the Jesuit Catholic social, uh, mission that we have here um, to try to respect the, the dignity of everybody and bring social justice both to these young people applying, but also to the patients that they would serve. Um, and so I took it on myself to research this question, could she become a physician? I wrote something that's become known in the history of the school as the report that nobody asked for, um, in which I described the <laughs> barriers and opportunities, the barriers being um, that she would uh, uh, need a lot of financial aid that we'd have to come up with, because ineligible for all mm. federal benefits, including federal student loans. And you two, I'm sure, know that med students use a lot of federal student loans. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and med school's expensive. It is. And so we were going to have to f offset the financial aid barrier. But the bigger problem was we didn't know what would happen when she graduated. Because as mm. you know, you go on to residency. And residency is a training program, but it's a job too, right? Yes. Right. And paperwork. Yes. And so she was going to need to be able to work lawfully. And that didn't seem possible at the time. So we weren't quite sure what to do. Mm -hmm. um, but as we sat on this pondering what to do, um, you know, to, whether to take a chance or not, but it was hard to take a chance because you're going to pour a lot of resources into a person who might not ever be able to treat a patient. And time. Yes. Um, June 15th of 2012, President Obama walked into the Rose Garden and announced the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals uh, program And because we'd had a report on what we needed here. And we tried to get all the information we could, and we heard the word work permits. DACA recipients not only get a stay on any action on their immigration status, but they are issued a work permit, a two-year two-year renewable uh, work permit and we knew that meant she had everything she would need to go on to residency and so our dean at the time dr linda brubaker who um, had been following this issue closely with me um, within that same week said we need to to do something we need to open our doors and so i, I should make clear there this is not any kind of uh, uh, special action, it is these students compete on a level playing field. And if they can get in based on their qualifications, they get in. If they can't, they don't. And the only thing that, that is really different is that we have made a commitment here at Stretch to trying to help them then fund their education because they still remain ineligible for those federal student loans. And so trying to come up with that money, and, it's, and I, honestly, it's a magic act every year because um, there's no easy way to offset these funds. But we found various partners like the uh, state of Illinois and the Illinois Finance Authority, which has funded some loans that look like public health service loans, where so they, they go um, return to underserved communities in the state of Illinois and, and serve there. Trinity Health, the parent of Loyola University Health System, which is a large Catholic um, corporation, has funded some loans. Uh, but we just keep having to find new partners and new ways to do this every year. And and I know you actually did a, a, a podcast, um, episode five, I think it is, uh, with Ima Syed, who's now in residency. She was in our mm -hmm. first group, and Cesar Montalongo, right. who is the first MD-PhD DACA recipient in the country. And oh, so, wow. Yeah, there are now several, including that. two here, but he was the first to do that. And so... Um, we have you. Um, I, I listened to that uh, recently, your, that podcast, and it's it's wonderful. I recommend it to mm -hmm. your listeners. Great. So do we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was an earlier one, and I think you made a really great point earlier about how one of the benefits of Loyola and medical schools in general accepting DACA students is that they will contribute to the communities in which they're learning or other communities within the U.S. And I think this represents a large difference between foreign students in general and DACA students because foreign students, I think, 
are more likely to go back to their home country and therefore not contribute to the country in which they studied. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading this in one of the articles you wrote, and um, I thought that that represented a really important difference that perhaps even represents a myth to the to the public. Right. Yes, that's true. The, um, DACA recipients are Americans. They grew up here. You know, for many of them, this is the only country they can remember. Um, yet they bring the benefit of, of, of usually being bilingual and bicultural. They understand both cultures. They understand their parents' culture from being raised there, but also the country where they went to school and the community that they grew up knowing. And so um, they have a foot in, in both worlds and are able to um, uh, help the patients in those communities as well as teach us about those communities. Whereas, as you say, um, foreign med students are wonderful people as well. They, you know, they often teach us a lot about their culture, but it's a culture from another country. And so if, if they end up staying in the U.S., which, many, as you say, many do go back to their um, home country, but if they do end up staying in the U.S., they have to learn about our culture in the communities that they're serving, whereas DACA recipients come from these communities. They right. teach us about these cultures. But of course, as you know, DACA is in some trouble right now, right? Um, on September 5th of 2017, President Trump announced he was rescinding DACA. Um, it was created by an executive order from President Obama. What one president does by executive order, the next one can undo. Mm -hmm. And um, fortunately for us, the courts have kept DACA open for renewals. So these students have been able to continue to renew their work permits and while it makes its way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court heard oral arguments uh, um, a couple months ago and will issue a ruling in the spring. Um, and uh, they could very well decide that the Trump administration has the power to rescind it. Um, but even if they don't, even if they side with the plaintiffs, with the DACA recipients, um, it leaves DACA hanging by a thread because the court case, nobody's challenging the president's right to rescind an executive memorandum. They're really saying he violated the procedures you're supposed to go through. The Administrative Procedures Act sets those down. And so even if the court rules for the plaintiffs, the administration will go back to the drawing board and try to rescind it again according to the proper procedures. So um, eventually um, that will be rescinded. We need a legislative solution. We need Congress to, to step up and act and pass um, a pathway to citizenship for these young people, um, which uh, it goes by many names, but typically the most common legislation is called the DREAM Act, um, which would give right. a pathway to citizenship to them. So for our listeners at home, if there's just one thought that you'd like to leave with everyone, what would that be as it relates to undocumented immigration and, and healthcare? Um, well, I'll, I'll give you two. Um, one is educate yourself. You know, pay attention to news stories, read the news stories, use Google when you don't understand something that's going on with immigration. Um, learn a little bit about that system so that we do come away knowing better what, the kinds of things we need. And then call your legislators. Um, you know, call your senators, call your congressmen, tell them you want immigration reform, in particular the DREAM Act to, to help uh, the young people. The DREAM Act is not comprehensive. It only deals with young people um, who are typically covered by DACA or, or slightly a broader group of young people. Um, but we, we desperately need that. And even if you're in a state where you're, you know that your legislator or senator would vote for uh, such a piece of legislation, call them and let them know it's a priority for you. Because one of the problems is People who have a lot of misinformation and are angry and, and uh, are become anti-immigrant, they vote on this issue and their legislators know that. A lot of people kind of say, yeah, I, I'm kind of for immigration reform, I'm for these young people. But they don't make it a priority. You don't hear the, say, for instance, the Democratic presidential candidates talking a lot about immigration reform, right? And so we need to let our legislators who are pro-reform know we want them to make it a priority because ultimately we really need them to step up. Great. Dr. Kuszewski, thank you very much for what's been an enlightening conversation. We really appreciate the information you brought and hope that our listeners gain something from hearing about these myths and your responses to them. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for being here. 
As always, thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, no patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.